You're listening to Our Tunes. Music appreciation and digital media discourse. We're breaking into the second episode of the pod. We're going to be discussing what everybody these days loves. Data. Cold, lifeless data. Uh, So this is data that relates specifically to the libraries Brad and I possess. By the numbers. By the numbers, yes. I will say Brad came out uh, on top with the gigabyte count. 191.11 gigabytes of mostly MP3. Probably some WAV files in there, too. I want to say there's some AAC. Okay. I, I don't know what that is. You got any FLAC in there, bro? I got some FLAC. WAV is a high-quality file. So yeah. is FLAC, though. Yeah. I was looking at my bit rates. Yeah. Um, still a little confused about what all that means, but... Uh, <laughs> Are they looking good? At the time, I was at the time like when I was putting this music together, I was like, bit rates? You want the high ones. I don't really know. I've so in reality, I might have more gigabytes because the bit rates are higher. Also, I'm thinking that the quality of whatever music I acquired from 2005 onward, uh, some of that stuff is like original stuff that I've had for years and has transferred multiple computers with probably the same very low bit rate or low quality, right? Probably just straight up bad or at least different from how it's supposed to be. Mm. I, I definitely know that I've burned some CDs that were like, burn cds that had scratches on them so you get that like nice pop sound mm. so then i'm like you it's know, the, warm the bit rate the bit rate is like in the 300s but like the quality that's recorded is like every snap crackle and pop in high def <laughs> that's how you know it's real yeah continuing on the the numbers game uh total artists i topped you out so despite the, the gigabyte difference, my library contains 1,115 unique artists. Uh, and yours contains 1,020, which is a pretty respectable second. I think that's more artists than I can possibly name, given like a week to do that. I would say that there were periods in my life where I had compulsions to get every single album of the artist I was listening to. Oh yeah. That was like the number one goal where it was like when I would complete that for one artist, I would move on to the next one where I'd just be like, I need all of them. Would you move alphabetically? No, but Mm. I think it did compel me to stick with the artists that had larger repertoires because like part of the joy was like collecting them all. Have a discography. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Like, I was like, so I know in that collection, I have like 20 albums by Herbie Hancock. Wow. <laughs> I just had to have them all. So, uh, song count. Brad, you have over 28,000 songs in your library. 28,646, which is far more than me. I have 17,628 songs. <laughs> There's no way I've listened to all those songs. Have I listened to okay. half of those songs? <laughs> uh. Probably not. No, um, but you have them, right? And it's a yeah. it's a precious thing, and you have it. Uh, precious? I don't know. If it disappeared, would you be devastated quietly and yes then forget and no. about it? I don't know. Ask me 10 years ago, I would have <laughs> said yes. Yeah, sure. I don't know. Spotify has changed my life. I'm just like, eh, it's somewhere. What I would say is the stuff that's on there that like I would miss are like things that are recordings that I've made or I've gotten from somewhere that yeah. I know was probably hard to find. Yeah, like you have no access <clears throat> to the email account where you originally linked those or they were on yeah. Media Fire or MySpace or like you got them from some obscure source that no longer exists. And 
terms of songs, I would say that it makes me think about periods where I looked for like collections of singles. Like pre greatest hits albums? No, well, kind of, but like pre-album music. You know, albums kind of became popular in the early 60s prior to that. People were really like working towards making singles. Like I've had periods where I've been really interested, you know, I've really dived deep into like the Billboard Hot 100. Because that's also kind of a historical record, right? Yeah, yeah. And I'm sure I have albums that came with like the mono version and the stereo version. (laughs) Which I honestly cannot hear the difference. I'm sorry. But you have them in your library. I'm not an audiophile. Yeah, I almost want to delete it just because I'm like, I'm not that pretentious. But the uh, (laughs) it's it's not even pretention, right? It's this the 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 completism, right? I need to have the whole, right? And making the whole a part of me is important. I, I think I used to feel that way. Yeah, yeah. But I've kind of let that go. I will say that when I was compiling this data, I was I had to upload all of my songs into iTunes. A lot of my tags got messed up. Oh. And I'm like, I, you know, I was just like, I spent so much time filling in these stupid tags with like the genre, the titles. The... Did you put in like studio trivia? Or did you add anything to those tags? Oh, you personalized good news, them? good news. Okay. The comments have been preserved. Oh my God. I mean, we're going to need, a, that's yeah, going to be a whole yeah. own segment, you realize. Yes. Albums by the numbers. Uh, Brad has 2,103 albums in his library. As far as minutes of music, you have almost double the number of minutes of music in your library that I do, even though our gigabyte numbers are not quite that far apart. Over 120,000 minutes of music exist in your personal iTunes library. Mine is uh, close to 70,000, 69,120 minutes, but that's like, that's chump change next to 124,266. I'm guessing maybe it's all the prog rock. (laughs) I'm gonna go with yeah. And now for Platinum Record. Lewis and I have decided we want to talk about some of the sort of platinum albums in our respective discographies. The first one that came to mind was really inspired by the uh, timely passing of one Mr. Meatloaf. And uh, so we decided we would talk about the album Bad Outta Hell, which came out in 1977. I'll say that, I don't know about you, Lewis, but like the news is seemingly fixated on a day-to-day basis with like the latest celebrity passing. And I know that I woke up that morning and as I torture myself every morning, I look at the news as soon as I wake (laughs) up and I saw the passing of Meatloaf I, How do you feel? You know what I did? I immediately watched the video of I Will Do Anything for Love. Oh, man. <laughs> okay, yeah. yeah. Uh, so I was watching that in bed. <laughs> <laughs> the music video, mind you. I would recommend everyone take a, take a look at that music video. It's a real statement of the 90s. <laughs> Afterwards, I listened to Bad Out of Hell. I want to talk about it more, but I just wanted to say, great album. I did know that this was like one of the the greatest selling albums of all time. But I had always just kind of overlooked it. This album has sold 43 million plus copies worldwide. It is 14X Platinum by RIAA. That is a for real platinum record. It peaked at number 14 on the Billboard 200. So it was never like a number one album. In its day, right? Yeah. I don't know, Lewis. Like, what what is your memories or experiences with Meatloaf? (laughs) 
or uh, the album Bad Out of Hell? Bad Out of Hell, like the single, obviously got plenty of radio play. I encountered Meatloaf in that context. It's more like, okay, these are radio singles. This is like, it kind of made the cliche of this sort of big stakes like cabaret music that infused right metal and piano ballads and like wind instruments all in one like I kind of got that I understood like where it was coming from but did I listen to this album religiously no and like I don't think I could name more than a couple songs from it my first encounter with Meatloaf was when Edward Norton is crying on his breasts in the movie Fight Club mostly his acting career Rocky Horror Picture Show yeah great one Rocky Horror Picture Show is like literally him playing himself right rolls up on a motorcycle like completely insane Mm -hmm. and does hot patootie bless my soul (laughs) my earliest recollection of this album dates all the way back to like the columbia house like Uh, cd by mail oh yeah thing you got the envelope with the like big stamp book of different albums so we got that cd from one of those you know it was always in like my family's like living room cd tower the thing that i think i remembered the most was the cover of it this like super striking illustration of this like naked muscly guy on a motorcycle bursting out of a grave in a cemetery with a like vampire bat skeleton hovering over a crypt it's an iconic cover <laughs> and and it's funny because it is like kind of uh, evocative of a like i don't know like a 70s metal album like ronnie james dio yeah. album but then when you put it on it's not metal at all something completely different yeah yeah I, I looked into a little bit more of the history because all i really knew about it was meatloaf looking a little deeper found out that all of the music was composed by this guy named jim steinman it was produced by none other than todd rundgren oh shit Um, coming back to todd yeah he also played lead guitar on all of it back to jim steinman he had initially developed this as part of a musical called neverland which was some sort of futuristic rock adaptation on peter pan that sounds really cool (laughs) and i would love to see that if it exists yeah now i didn't know anything about this before i read it somewhere on the internet and i just gotta say reading the lyrics i am not seeing peter pan but (laughs) but then again i don't really know the peter pan story other than what i saw in the disney movie maybe there was the part with like teenage sex and like i don't think that's really shown in the disney movie but the the undertones are there so like i could see that uh them going that direction teasing that out of the plot for for those of you who have not listened to bad out of hell i want to direct your attention to a couple of the best tracks in my opinion please do. so first one that i think everyone would direct to first is paradise by the dashboard light Kind of got these like influences of Jerry Lee Lewis, you know, it's got this boogie woogie background, mm-hmm. you know, some elements that sound a little more like Bruce Springsteen. It sounds like it's coming from the 70s. Full of this like racy teenage love, angst, hormonal urges, but at the same time, it kind of feels like music that is coming from band geeks and drama geeks, which I remember those times. <laughs> it's like scrappy, but like orchestrated and, and feels huge. 
Yeah, at the same time. The lyrical content is in your face and easy to interpret. All revved up with no place to go. It's literally about a high school jock who's feeling like he's at the top of his game in high school, but on Friday night, he's all alone. You think he's alone? Literally, that's what the lyrics say. Wow. <laughs> Paradise by the Dashboard Light, great song. You took the words right out of my mouth. It's probably the one that was on the radio the most. Yeah. I really appreciate the musical arrangement and direction of that particular song. Really, one, it's super catchy. I'm not particularly good at remembering lyrics. All week I've just been walking around being like, you took the words right out of my mouth, like kind of humming it. It is very much evocative of the Phil Spector girl bands of the early 60s, the, the rhythm and, and drums of it, but also like the female background singers. Yeah, like, like the, the pitches they're hitting and like. Yeah. Totally, love that song. Rolling Stone magazine. Now, everyone's top 500 list yeah. is whatever. When I when I saw the 343 out of 500 on this Rolling Stone list, maybe think like maybe I too was being a little too pretentious about Meatloaf. Maybe he kind of gets overlooked. Like, say you saw that cover and you were into Iron Maiden Dio and you're like, I'm going to get bad out of hell. And you bring it home, you listen to it, and you're like, what is this? <laughs> <laughs> but I think there's something about the aesthetic, right? It's so shameless. It's yes. like... It's so in your face. It does everything like in a maximalist way. Yeah, I, I loved kind of writing down some words that came to my mind as I was like listening to it. Mm. It is unpretentious. It is fun. It is in your face. It's like a rock opera musical. It makes me think of high school band geeks and drama geeks in the best way. <laughs> like belting it out you know i was in a rush cover band i was super self-absorbed with being like i am a technically prowess bass player this is a safe space Brad. yeah i went to like my high school drama shows and i'm like wow i am so impressed with people's ability to just go out there and just do it yeah and i was just like so worried that i like had to play every single thing like perfectly i have a growing appreciation for it and i think this happens right especially after an artist passes away right record sales spike streams go way the hell up he was mainstream in a lot of ways and sold a lot of records but he also emboldened people to have their own style right their own attitude and there was a little bit of a like fuck you to that right <laughs> and I, I was gonna say one other sort of recollection meatloaf culture <laughs> i guess <laughs> uh was that karaoke like oh. i definitely have been to karaoke in different cities where there's it's not uncommon to hear someone sing a meatloaf song i mean uh, it seems like <laughs> it would work so well like that's a perfect context to do this it's so performative mm -hmm. If you do it really earnestly, it's a good time for everybody. Exactly. Hell so yeah. that's the recommendation to everyone. Listen to Bad Out of Hell, pick out which song you're going to do at karaoke, and then go to karaoke and do it.
I love doing the yes version of Close to the Edge. You do there's, not do yes there's at only karaoke. A f- there's, only a few, there's only a few <laughs> lyrics that you have to remember. Oh you God. got all the great music at the beginning and at the end. That, and the rest of it says yeah. uh, parentheses <laughs> instrumental break. <laughs> you just stand there like air guitar. It's more like oh. air keyboarding. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. Double, double keyboarding. Okay. <laughs> so RIP Meatloaf. Your legacy will live on like a bat out of hell. <laughs> I'm gonna hit the highway like a battering ram on a silver black phantom bike. Oh, when the metal is hot and the engine is hungry, I'm all about to see the light. Nothing ever grows in this rotten old hole, and everything is stunning and lost. And nothing really rocks, and nothing really rolls, and nothing's ever worth the cost. And now for homework. So for our next segment, we're going to be talking about the homework assignment that Lewis gave me last week. If you recall from our previous episode, I had given Lewis the homework assignment of listening to this Faust album, Faust 4, and he was... Uh, it was a joy. He was a A-plus student in his review, and we had a great time talking about it. So at the end of the last episode, he had assigned me... Emily Haynes and the Soft Skeleton. The album was Knives Don't Have Your Back, a 2006 release. So this is an Emily Haynes record. Emily Haynes, if you're not familiar, she's uh, the front woman of the band Metric, Canadian indie pop band. They've kind of become like an arena rock band now. They're, they're touring with ridiculous big money arena acts now. Back when this album came out, Metric was still like kind of a gigging indie rock band. This album that she put out is a solo album that she released following the death of her father. It just is so stripped down and personal it feels pretty bare compared to like the other stuff with metric which is mostly power pop and this is really just like more poetic everything you've said so far totally aligns with the research and the emotional sort of reception that i've had and listening to this album a few times i was somewhat aware of metric i cannot name an album that i've actually listened to i know there's one in my itunes library (laughs) (laughs) and i know emily haynes had some sort of collaboration with broken social scene i think going into this i had certain expectations in terms Mm. of something with a little more pop sensibilities it is not that (laughs) um (laughs) as you had alluded to i did not come across this and wasn't aware that this was an album that came after the passing of her father but it really does make sense because one of my questions was like who's the soft skeleton because really it's really just emily haynes and her piano her voice is really the thing that is the most compelling it is the most prominent part of this whole album followed by her piano playing there's some other synths and organs that uh, they might be emily who's playing them you know some very subtle drums there's maybe one song that has some horns on it but otherwise, it's just her voice, piano, and really, as I was listening to it, thoughts that came to mind were, this is really sad music. <laughs> this is sad. Lewis gave me a sad me album <laughs> to listen to. You know, there's a place in time that I think I, I like listening to, you know, an album that has this sort of weight and gravity. I will say that I sort of worked through that this week because this was a homework assignment. Otherwise, I would 
turn this off simply because it is so heavy. Well, I'm honored that you persevered. Yeah, I feel, you know. I feel like you took it really seriously. Yeah, it is really just Emily, her voice, her piano. You know, it is very sort of minimalist and stripped down. As I was thinking about it, I was like, what is this genre of music? Initially, I was like, the word chamber pop came to my mind. But then I, as I was listening to it, I was like, there's nothing poppy about this. There's a couple of songs that had some poppier elements, but nothing about this album to me really screams pop. And Lewis, this is something that I'm, I'm hoping that I'd like to learn more about a genre that I think you know more about, which is emo. <laughs> and I gotta say, would it be wrong to call this chamber emo? I would say that is very apt, actually. <laughs> totally raw, pure venting of emotion. Right, you could put any other kind of lyrical content on top of this, and it might make for, yeah, a chamber pop record. But is music this sad? Could that be considered to have those pop elements? And yeah, I think that's a good point. One thing that I came across on the internet looking up Emily Haynes, she has said in, in some statement somewhere that she's a fan of Robert Wyatt. I know of his collaboration with Soft Machine, late 60s early 70s jazz rock fusion psychedelic kind of band you know one of my favorites but Robert Wyatt also had a number of solo albums he was mainly playing the piano minimalist and also quite melancholy and sad in tone um I can see how he could be a real influence on this album you know some of the songs that really stood out Dr. Blind which I think seemed like it was one of the most well-received tracks on the album at least according to Pitchfork Baby's got the lonesome lows Don't quite go away overnight Doctor Blind just prescribed the blue ones If the dizzying highs don't subside overnight Doctor Blind just prescribed the red ones Critical. It was a critical dark. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, it was also maybe one of the tracks that had the most straightforward lyrics, where it was very clear that it was like kind of about how drugs are available to soothe us, you know, whether it's to lift us up or to bring us down. Lyrics are not generally how I listen to music, so forgive me, Emily Haynes, if I'm misinterpreting your lyrics. Um, I also would put Mostly Waving, which is the one that has the horns on it. other ones you know that's really just Emily and her piano were crowd surf off a cliff
reading. That's my favorite one. Yeah. That's great. And reading in bed. Just to give you a sense for some of the uh, lyrical content from reading in bed, with all the luck you've had, why are your songs so sad? That lyric in particular is a reference to Elliot Smith. And I think that ties in a little bit to your idea of a chamber emo, very orchestrated version of pop music that is at once extremely sad because that was his thing. I know of Elliot Smith, but I don't know his music. But... Oh man, that'll be homework in the future too. <laughs> Are you just gonna make me listen to sad music? Well, okay. This is a gut punch of an album. Yeah, and let me tell you, I really needed Meatloaf to help balance me out this week. I'm so glad it worked out that way. I'm mean, sorry he's dead, I guess. But... Um, I just did want, I did want to comment on her piano playing. I don't think I naturally gravitate towards listening to music that has this sort of emotional, melancholy, sad feel, but the way that she plays the piano is how I like to play the piano. <laughs> Just the general song structures, like it would be easy to be minimalist and sad and it not be interesting at all. The piano carried me through it all. I'm actually excited to listen to more of her work. She's got a wonderful voice. It's a kind of a bummer that her work with Metric is much more like synthesizers and like little lead parts because it's very much like a, a pop band. Mm -hmm. But she does have another solo album that came out a few years ago that's similarly pretty damn good it's not quite as much of a gut punch it's got more instrumentation but it does feature more of her piano a lot more of her like more like soulful vocal work and i have a little piece of studio trivia to throw down right. so when this album came out is when i first listened to it and i got to see her perform it live that's kind of what cemented this album for me as not only is lyrical content really compelling particularly because i love sad music i love grief records it's an artist very pure synthesis of one of the most difficult universal experiences and that means that they can put so much poignancy into that and it'll be timeless it lasts forever especially when you do it as well as she did but the studio lore that I was aware of was there was a press photo of her published wearing like a blindfold over a piano and I actually read in an article like press release that she was composing some of this album literally with a blindfold on kind of feeling that out naturally. I mean, obviously she's incredibly talented, but that's also just a really novel approach to creating an album in a style that I don't think she'd ever really worked before too. To me, that makes the album even more impressive than I already find it and it just, it struck me. And I'm glad it struck you. I know it's not easy to listen to. It's pretty bleak. There's some really dark shit on it. I thought to myself, I was like, I don't know that I could listen to this on like a sunny day. Uh, no, it's it's pretty cloudy. It's it's seasonal affective disorder uh, music. It's yeah. like you're snowed into your house and there's no hope coming and you're out of groceries. So everyone beware. That's what you're in for. But if that's what you need, you'll get a good, uh, good dose. I'm so glad that you took that journey, Brad. Thank you, Liz. Would you mind telling me what my next homework assignment's going to be? Yes. I am going to um, ask you to listen to the album by Nancy Sinatra and Lee Hazelwood called 
Nancy and Lee. All right. I'm excited to get to know the both of them. All right. It's a good one. You've just listened to Our Tunes. This show is hosted by Brad Lanute and Lewis Weil, produced by Robert Hughes. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time. Two iTunes libraries. Two iTunes libraries. <laughs> Two iTunes libraries. <laughs> of We're going to create me- a, a remix of Music this. <laughs> appreciation and digital media discourse. Oh, yeah. And our... Two iTunes libraries.